Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Helena Croft, a managing director and the head of global commodity strategy and Middle East and North Africa research at RBC Capital Markets. Halima is a leading oil market analyst, and in today's episode, she'll help us understand what's happening in the volatile oil market. Our conversation ranges from Russia to Europe to China to Saudi Arabia to Texas and beyond. Halima will unpack how OPEC, Ukraine, and the U.S. government have responded to today's high prices and give us an inside view from her recent travels in the Middle East. Stay with us. All right, Helima Croft from RBC Capital Markets. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me on. So, Helima, um, you know I've followed your work for quite a while, and I imagine many of our listeners have as well. But uh, but I don't know how you actually got interested in working on energy in the first place. Like, did you have have you been interested in this stuff for a long time? Have you come to it, you know, in your professional career? What's the background of your story getting into this stuff? Well, I did a PhD in economic history at Princeton, and I actually was covering a number of commodity producing countries, you know, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, as part of my coursework. And my first job out of my PhD program was at the CIA. I joined right after 9-11, and I was part of a group looking at worldwide threats to oil disruption. And I was I was very focused on the West African oil producing countries. We were tracking supply disruptions there, the consequences for global markets, for US foreign policy, particularly as we were heading into the Iraq war when we had a Venezuelan oil disruption. And so energy security has really been something I've been focused on for, for 20 years. That's so fascinating. I did not know that. So yeah, we won't ask you any, you know, state secrets or anything on today's episode. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we are going to talk today about energy markets, which everybody listening knows have been, you know, really tumultuous lately. There's been historic volatility. Um, so I'm hoping you can get us started with a little bit of historical perspective about this volatility that we've seen, not just in the last couple months, but like over the last couple years with COVID, um, especially in the oil and natural gas markets. So like when we think about the the scale of volatility in both of those markets in recent years, like are there precedents for what we've experienced? And if so, like how would you characterize this uh, this moment compared with those previous moments? I mean, if we just think back to the last, you know, two and a half years, I mean, we have experienced tremendous volatility. I mean, particularly in the oil markets. If you think about what happened, you know, with COVID, which was the largest collapse in demand that we've ever witnessed. And during this collapse in demand, we actually had a price war between two of the largest oil producing countries, Saudi Arabia and Russia, where they essentially flooded the oil market at the moment demand was collapsing. And then we had to have this historic agreement between OPEC producing nations, non-OPEC producing nations, to really do the largest supply cut in history to stabilize the oil markets in 2020, because there was a concern that essentially U.S. shale production was going out of business in that price environment. And Donald Trump got very, very involved in brokering this big OPEC plus cut. And now we fast forward to the situation we're in now with, again, one of the world's largest you know, oil and gas and commodity producers, Russia, involved in a war with Ukraine. And we have questions about you know, what is going to be the impact in terms of potential Russian supply disruptions because of sanctions. And so we've had so much volatility driven by pandemics, geopolitics, 
We've had you know significant amount of investment coming out of the oil and gas sector. So we've had sort of a, a tight fundamental backdrop you know, this year as we are having this, this major you know, geopolitical event that's really roiling markets right now. Yeah. So how much of, you know, the high prices that we're seeing in the oil markets today, how much of that would you sort of attribute to the Russian invasion? And how much of it would you attribute to, you know, pre-existing issues related to, you know, relatively low investment rates and, you know, uh, tight, tight supplies uh, coming from other parts of the market? I mean, just think where we were you know, in February before Russian troops crossed the border. I mean, we were already looking at oil prices in the 90s, predictions of triple digit prices, simply because of the fact that you had this economic reopening, you know, as people got back on planes, they got in their cars and drove to work, people thinking about a sort of a post COVID world or when COVID becomes sort of endemic, and the sort of uptick in economic activity not being matched by a significant uptick in global oil supply. You know, investment in the sector collapsed in 2020. And you have a situation now where you know a number of key oil producing countries have struggled to raise output. As I mentioned before, we had this big you know OPEC decision to cut production. They are now putting barrels back onto the market in a sort of coordinated fashion. But a number of those nations, you know Nigeria, Angola, they're struggling to reach their monthly OPEC production levels because of lack of investment. And right now, when we want to think about which countries are sitting out there in the world with spare capacity, and as we define spare capacity, that's the barrels that you can bring on in 30 days and keep on for 90 days. It's really only a couple countries right now that can actually surge production. Principally, Saudi Arabia is the one sitting on the most barrels right now. UAE has, you know, a couple hundred thousand. But if we think about what is the the spare capacity out there, when we think about the sovereign oil producers, we're probably talking about two to 2.4 million barrels that can be brought to this market relatively quickly. And that's why there is this concern about Russia, because as countries continue to think about taking sanctions on Russian energy, Energy, there is growing concern that you may not have enough supply to fill this hole if we start to see very serious Russian supply disruptions. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, just to give people context who don't follow the oil markets closely, you know, global oil demand is in the neighborhood of 100 million barrels per day. I think it's a little bit below that at the moment. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, the order of magnitude that we're, that we're thinking about globally here. So let's talk about Russia for a moment. Um, you know, government sanctions from the United States and, you know, quote unquote, self-sanctions from some major oil and gas companies have certainly affected uh, Russian oil exports. But one thing that I'm not totally clear on is like how much Russian oil has physically come off the market and how much is simply being exported to like different destinations? This is a great question. This is something that it's being challenging to sort of get a handle on the full scale of Russian disruptions. Because as you mentioned, there has been this self-sanctioning process as, you know, energy companies have cut their ties with Russia, Western energy companies, as you've seen, you know, shipping firms, trading houses, banks all say we're not going to be involved anymore in the Russian energy business. And so we have had reports that, you know, potentially a million barrels, potentially a million and a half barrels of Russian exports are not finding a home because of self-sanctioning. 
But at the same time, if you look at, you know, some of these key importing countries like India, we've seen them ramp up their Russian imports. I mean, Russian barrels are selling at a discount of around $30 a barrel. And so for India, which is very focused on securing cheap energy supplies, you know, Russia looks like an attractive partner. They also have a strong historic relationship with Russia in terms of Russia being a major arms supplier to India. Russia has provided India support on issues like Kashmir. And so, you know, for India, the economics of taking Russian barrels right now is pretty strong, despite, you know, President Biden's requests that they desist from doing so. There are no indications yet that India is going to curtail their Russian purchases. We also have reports that Turkey is ramping up purchases of Russian crude. So to me, the interesting question is going to be, are we going to get to a situation where not only do key European countries that import lots of Russian oil, like Germany, decide that they are going to wind down those purchases, but is the United States going to take active measures to try to restrict key Asian countries from importing Russian barrels, essentially taking a page from what was done with Iran by applying secondary sanctions. And it's secondary sanctions that would essentially say to a company like Reliance Industries in India, you can continue to do business with US regulated institutions, access US capital markets, or you can take Russian oil. We have not made that decision yet to go down that path. I think the White House is reluctant to really restrict Russian oil exports at the moment that there are heightened concerns about inflation. But if we see you know, further atrocities in this war, if we have, you know, God forbid, a, a chemical weapons attack in Ukraine, I do think there's going to be momentum to implement you know, much more serious Iran-style sanctions on Russia. That's really interesting. And it's worth thinking, too, and you noted this in your answer that, you know, we're not just talking about India and China that are still buying Russian oil. It's it's Europe as well, right? I mean, there's still a lot of barrels flowing to Europe. Absolutely. And this has been the sort of heart of the dilemma for Europeans. I mean, the Europeans are, you know, uniquely exposed to Russian energy. I mean, again, Germany is, is the case study for this, you know, given the fact that they take about 34% of their oil imports from Russia, 32% of their natural gas from Russia, around 50% of their hard coal imports come from Russia. And so they have, you know, really serious economic exposure to Russian commodities. And a number of powerful leaders in Germany have very strong, longstanding ties to Russian commodity corporates. I mean, Gerhard Schroeder is the, the poster child for this, given his role on the boards of Nord Stream, Gazprom, his involvement with Rofsneft. And so the Germans are sort of in a, in a bind about how much they want to punish Russia in a potentially putting themselves into a recession. And so this is the kind of the heart of the, the dilemma for Europe as they talk about the need to isolate Russia. They also are facing concerns about what will be the economic cost of doing so. Yeah. And, and Gerhard Schroeder is the former prime minister of Germany. Is that right? He's the former chancellor. Yes. Former chancellor. Okay. I got to get my terminology straight here. Um, so, uh, so Halima, that, that's so fascinating. Let's, you know, I could ask you so many more questions about Russia and Europe, but uh, I'd like to ask you about the Middle East because I know you've, you know, recently returned from a, a trip where you spent a couple weeks in the Middle East uh, talking with some of the major producers. Um, so can you give us a sense of how 
OPEC kind of as a, as a unit is responding to the higher prices that we're seeing in the market and what some of the drivers are of the different responses and, and also like the different coalitions within OPEC and the disputes that are going on within that body? I mean, this is such a great question because I think back to November of 2016, where you had this marriage between OPEC and Russia. And now we have this sort of OPEC plus producer group that is, you know, co-chaired by Russia. Russia and Saudi Arabia are the the two co-chairs of this massive producer organization. And there were real questions when, when the war commenced in February. Would Russia be able to retain its role within OPEC? Would OPEC be pressured by the United States to increase production beyond the 400,000 barrel a day monthly increase they've been doing since the summer? And right now, there are no indications that the, the key OPEC countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, are prepared to break ranks with Russia. The Saudis have talked about you know, wanting a new security partnership with the United States. Um, energy would be part of a broader conversation about the U.S. role in helping Saudi Arabia, for example, safeguard key, you know, energy facilities from attacks by Houthis, you know, potentially assisting the kingdom with the development of a civilian nuclear program. The Saudis have raised concerns about the potential Iran deal that it would not address Iran's behavior in the region. And so they would like to have a, a broader conversation with the United States, and they, they would like to know that the United States is going to be a reliable security partner before they do something on oil policy, which would essentially dismantle this OPEC plus arrangement that has been in place and largely functioning since 2016. What's interesting to me is the other issue the Saudis are making as well which is about spare capacity, which, which I just mentioned. And they point to the fact that into the run-up to the financial crisis in 2007, that remember we had oil basically go to like $147 a barrel. And in that run-up to that really high price point in 2007, you had OPEC actually increasing production. And then traders would focus on the fact as OPEC increased production, that there was a really razor thin spare capacity buffer in the market. So every time OPEC added barrels, traders said, well, wait a second, if there is actually a supply disruption in a place like Nigeria, where there are militants attacking oil facilities, who can put more barrels on the market to make up for that if OPEC is essentially already surged output? And so what the Saudis are saying is, Given that we do not know the trajectory of this conflict with Russia, we don't know the full extent of the Russian losses because we could be looking at far more serious sanctions. If we were to use our firepower now, what would we have at our disposal if the crisis gets worse? Could we essentially lose control of the market? So the Saudis, I think, really are concerned about this issue of not using your spare capacity now when you don't know what's coming. The other country in the equation I think is very interesting though on the oil side is the UAE. And I was struck by the sort of difference in the way Emirati officials were talking about the Russia conflict. At the Global Energy Forum in Dubai, UAE's oil minister Suhail Mazrui, he said, look, we have no intention of asking Russia to leave OPEC. He also said that the world essentially should not be seeking to take any supply offline, that we should be focused on affordability, and that if we were to essentially go in for more serious 
you know, energy sanctions on Russia, energy would become unaffordable. And he also said something which I thought was really interesting, where he, he said on the public stage that Western nations should not be sending weapons to Ukraine and prolonging this conflict. So to me, I thought that was a, a very divergent message than you hear in Western nations, obviously, about how this conflict should be conducted, as Western nations are very focused on arming the Ukrainians, you have a major Middle Eastern oil producer saying essentially that that's not the right course of action. And and the UAE has essentially, you know, they're, they're basically saying, look, we want the conflict to end, but they're not publicly breaking ranks with Putin either. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, and maybe just one point of clarification for listeners who aren't oil nerds like us and don't know all the OPEC members by heart. So the, the OPEC members are Algeria, Angola, Congo, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Venezuela. And then this plus group that's led by Russia, but I think it also includes a couple other Eurasian countries. Is that right? Right. And interestingly, and they call it, you know, it includes countries like Kazakhstan, um, you have in there um, Colombia as well. I mean, it's it's a it's a much it's a much larger, more fulsome producer group. But what I think is, and Mexico is in there as well. What I think though is is interesting when we talk about some of the the other producers is we're actually seeing, besides the the Russia situation right now, uh, several other important OPEC plus countries are facing production issues as well, which is also exacerbating this precarious global supply picture. So for example, Libya is having more unrest in its oil producing region. We've had a number of ports and oil fields closed by armed protesters in the eastern region. We've lost around 550,000 barrels of Libyan exports. That could potentially expand to a million barrels. Kazakhstan has had problems with one of its largest pipelines, a CPC pipeline, which carries at 1.2 million barrels a day of oil through that pipeline. That pipeline has essentially been offline since March. And so we are also facing a situation where because we have already a very tight supply situation, we now have the potential loss of significant Russian volumes additional supply additives from countries like Libya and Kazakhstan will only fuel further concerns about a high oil price. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, Mexico and Colombia as well, right, having their own production issues uh, for a variety of, of complex reasons. Um, there was a note that uh, that you wrote uh, to uh, RBC um, clients recently uh, that focused on a recurring question that I think comes from an old Pete Seeger song, which is, uh, which <laughs> yes. side are you on? Um, so can you tell us what, you know, what that question refers to uh, in the context of OPEC uh, and why it's important for this discussion? No, I, I really, I, I was struck by that. As, as I mentioned, I spent two weeks in the region at the end of March, and that became the kind of, like the soundtrack of the trip. So for example, when we were in Saudi Arabia, as we were landing, there was a series of new Houthi attacks on you know, key Saudi energy facilities, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had taken the rare step of actually warning that Saudi production was at risk. And the sort of refrain from the sort of Saudi officials was like, look, you're asking us to increase production, and we're seeing our facilities attacked by cruise missiles and drones, 
And we know Iran is, you know, sponsoring the Houthis and it's some of their equipment that's being used. Like United States, like if you want our oil, which side are you on in terms of our security interests? And then we went to Doha for the Doha Forum. And I was so struck by the fact that during the one of the opening speakers at the Doha Forum in Qatar was, you know, Ukraine's, you know, President Zelensky. And you had, you know, Ukraine's deputy foreign minister there on stage. And they were issuing this clarion call to Middle Eastern producers to increase their production. And they were really framing this in incredible moral terms, in terms of like, look, every barrel that Russia can bring to the market is adding billions of dollars collectively to, to Putin's war machine. And we have to defund that machine. And so they were really saying to the, the regional players, like, please help us out in terms of whatever you can do in terms of additional oil and gas supplies. And the sheer fact that the Qataris had those speakers on the stage at their most important you know, security conference, I thought was very telling. But certainly in the sidelines of the conference, you also heard concerns, you know, Qatar is a major, you know, exporter of liquefied natural gas, that there isn't a lot of spare gas out there to surge into Europe to displace Russian piped gas. And they said, look, we're going to do what we can in terms of not diverting the supplies that we're already sending to Europe. But Europe takes about 15% of Qatar's LNG. And they're saying, look, we don't, we don't have that much more to give because the rest of our gas goes to Asia under long-term contracts. So think carefully about the sanctions you're looking to impose on Russia and think carefully about whether countries like Germany can deal with the economic fallout from those sanctions. And then, as I said, we went to the UAE and it was just to me so striking the, the public tone that Emirati officials were taking again on don't disrupt Russian oil exports, don't supply weapons to Ukraine. And then you had, you know, at the Global Energy Forum, which is sponsored by the Atlantic Council, you had, again, Ukrainian officials there, like the CEO of the big Ukrainian energy conglomerate, DTEC. And he, he again said, look, we absolutely need to go for energy sanctions because Vladimir Putin is getting about a billion dollars a day in revenue from oil and gas sales. And you have to cut this off. And you had the former, you know, foreign minister of Spain, you know, on stage with him saying, like, look, we cannot afford in Europe to cut off these energy imports right now. And we don't have alternative suppliers. Give us time. And the CEO of this Ukrainian company said time is not on our side. And every barrel of Russian oil is a bullet in the head of a Ukrainian baby. I mean, it was so stark the the way they framed this sort of issue around energy. And to me, that's why that which side are you on really was sort of like ringing in my ears those two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So let's cross the Atlantic now uh, and and think about the United States for just a couple minutes. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about whether and to what extent U.S. oil production uh, will be able to respond to the high prices that we've seen recently. I think you know, to my eye and to some other folks uh, who I've who I've heard from, you know, the, the U.S. response has been maybe surprisingly slow, um, given the high prices. You know, the rig count has not increased as quickly as, as you know, some may have expected. What's your view on um, the potential future for U.S. production if oil prices remain kind of at their elevated levels in the $100 per barrel range? 
I mean, we expect U.S. production to grow by, you know, over a million barrels a day this year. But the, the issue about the United States, and we, we saw this so many times, is that shale is not Superman. When you have a major supply disruption, the U.S. does not sit on spender capacity. We are not central bankers of oil. If you have a major disruption in the market, you have to place the call the country that sits on spare capacity. And again, can bring on oil in 30 days and keep it on for 90. That call has to be made to Riyadh. And that is why you've had, you know, starting in August, frankly, when Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was asking for more OPEC barrels because they were concerned about prices at that point. But that's why you've seen this intensified push with the White House sending delegations of U.S. officials to Riyadh to press the case for more barrels. Yes, the U.S. will grow, but it takes about six months from when a rig gets, you know, put to work till you start to see additional barrels. And so, yes, the U.S. will grow, but that production is going to be coming more at the tail end of the year. It's not going to immediately address the supply disruption from Russia. And the shale industry is also facing, you know, the cost inflation pressures that we see everywhere. Frack sand's expensive. Crews are expensive. Um, you know, getting people who had left the sector in 2020 during the downturn and took other jobs, getting them to come back to working in the oil and gas industry. And so the response is going to come, but it's not ever going to be the immediate fix to a supply problem. And so what we've seen is because the Saudis have said, look, we're going to continue as planned with putting barrels on the market. We're not gonna blow up this OPEC plus arrangement right now. That's why the United States had to announce the largest release from strategic petroleum reserve in history. There's 180 million barrels that's going to add an additional million barrels per day for six months. The United States, the White House made that decision, I think because they recognized that the traditional call that you place to Riyadh in a situation like this is gonna be sent to voicemail right now. And the US producers are going to grow, but not as quickly as needed. And so the release of the SPR was a way to try to calm the markets and put supply on because they didn't have a lot of better options out there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you say a little bit more about um... You know, you, you've alluded to this, but if you could give us a little bit more detail on, you know, why is that call going to voicemail right now from the White House uh, to, in, in, in Riyadh? Uh, you know, there are multiple factors, but can you give us, uh, you know, some of the big ones? No, I mean, certainly if you want to think about the, the relationship between Riyadh and Washington was strong during the Trump administration. You think about, you know, the relationship between, you know, Jared Kushner and, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was reportedly very strong. And, you know, on the campaign trail, you did have then-candidate Biden make, a, you know, several statements about, you know, essentially having a serious reset in the U.S.-Saudi relationship and, you know, not in a, a way that would be, you know, amenable to friendship. It would basically, you know, saying like, look, you know, I think he actually said we're going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah on, on the, the campaign trail. And so now you've had this situation where they've had to walk that back and make, you know, again, these significant appeals to the Saudis. And the Saudis are saying, look, you know what, while the media focuses on this issue of will President Biden call 
you know, the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's essentially running the country already, they're saying, look, it's, it's not just about a phone call. It's about the fact that we used to have this strong security partnership with Washington, and we would like that partnership restored before we can have this conversation about disrupting a production arrangement that is held pretty well since 2016. That's so interesting. And how much of the tension uh, might also be chalked up to the ongoing efforts of the Biden administration to bring the United States back into the Iran deal? I mean, this was, again, when they talk about security partnership, I think part of the, the reason why they're looking for a security partnership is they have concerns that the nuclear negotiations with Iran are going to be very narrow and not address the, the core security concerns, which is Iran's sponsorship of armed groups in the region. And it's frankly not just the Saudis that are saying this. You know, we heard other officials at the Global Energy Forum saying, like, look, while the West focuses on the, the nuclear threat, for us, the biggest concern is Iran's sponsorship of militias throughout the region that destabilize a variety of governments. And so the Saudis and you know the Emiratis have expressed, and obviously the Israelis, have expressed concern about a deal that would leave Iran able to fund these groups, sponsor these groups, and not address what they see as a core security concern. And so I, I think Iran sort of hovers over everything in these conversations about a security partnership. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Halima Croft from RBC Capital Markets, we've been talking for almost 30 minutes, but it's felt like five minutes. It's been such a fascinating and fast-paced conversation. Um, I want to go now to uh, the last question that we ask all of our guests who come on the show um, to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard. And I want to just put a quick plug in uh, for a book that keeps coming to mind as you've been speaking, which is uh, from a few years back. Uh, it's Bob McNally's Crude Volatility. Oh, he's amazing. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I cannot, you know, I cannot recommend um, Bob McNally higher. I mean, he's, he's, he's the best. I actually traveled with him a lot in the first couple months of 2020, that very fateful um, OPEC meeting where you had the Russians and the Saudis fail to agree. And so he's he's an extraordinary market analyst. I also you know, strongly recommend Javier Blas's The World for Sale, which really looks at the role of commodity trading houses in the market. And as we, as we think about now, you know, Russian oil, you know, the role of the big trading houses in moving this product, I think, is going to be increasingly under the spotlight. But the last thing I would say, I think it's always sort of worth revisiting, is a, is a movie that thinks about energy in the Middle East and politics. I, I think it's always worth when you want to, you know, watch something at home. I always recommend like looking up Syriana and just going back and thinking about the sort of tangled, you know, security energy picture that it, it tells. That's great. I, yeah, I remember I watched Syriana a long time ago and I haven't revisited it. So maybe maybe that'll be on my on my weekend. It's really list. worth revisiting. Yeah, cool. And you get to look at George Clooney for 90 minutes. <laughs> Not so bad. Not so bad. Awesome. Well, Halima Croft from RVC, uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio and helping us understand the fascinating and complex uh, world of the oil market. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment 
on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.